when I, when I first started the series, that's like five weeks ago now, I started doing some research as to the origin of uh, this childhood prayer. And it, it goes back as much as uh, over 200 years that parents have been teaching this to their, to their kids. And I think it's <clears throat> obvious one of the reasons why is because it's, uh, it's something that they say at bedtime, now I lay me down to sleep, you know. And, and nighttime obviously can be a very scary time for kids. It might even be a scary time for some adults as well. I don't know, maybe some of you still have a nightlight on. I, I, I heard rumors about some of you, I won't mention who they are, Paul has a <laughs> Mickey Mouse uh, nightlight. <laughs> No, just kidding, just kidding. You know, but, but, but some of you like, like, like to sleep with a little light, light cracked in the bathroom or whatever, you know. Uh, but, but, but nighttime is, is, and can be, you know, kind of a scary thing. Like, what, what parent here has not dealt with uh, a child that woke up in the middle of the night? And isn't it interesting? It, it, they always, it always is referred to the dead of night. It's never referred to the dead of day. You know, it's the middle of the day, but it's the dead of night, right? Well, there's something about that darkness associated with it. But, but what, what, what parent has never had to just say, everything's all right, honey, mommy and daddy here, you know, go back to sleep because you had a bad dream, you know, everything's all right. Or, or what, what child hasn't wanted to crawl into bed with mommy and daddy because they were frightened by something during the night? And so uh, darkness, you know, uh, and anxiety and worry and fear, you know, all those things can come up. Uh, and so maybe that's one of the origins uh, or, or the motivations behind uh, this prayer. There, there, there's a Swedish proverb that's very interesting. It says this, it says, worry often gives a small thing a big shadow. Worry often gives a small thing a big shadow. There it is. And uh, I mean, just, just, just imagine that. When, when, when you're anxious about something, when you're worried about something, it creates, it creates something bigger than, than what it really is. You know, statistically, they say that about 90 to 95% of the things that people worry about never come to pass anyway. So, 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 so really, the, the worry is, is kind of needless, but, but it happens. And, and, and which one of us as adults, has not lost some amount of sleep because of some issue that we were anxious about or was, was troubling us. Uh, there's another saying, and I want to I ask you for a show of hands. How many of you have ever heard this phrase before, okay? And, and, and it is a phrase, it goes like this, that there is a, a dark night of the soul. Have, have, Anybody ever heard of the expression, the dark night of the soul? There's about a dozen or more. That is not the title of the next Batman movie. Although it can be, it probably is not going to be. It happens to be actually a thesis that was written by a mystic back in the 16th century. And, and it has to do with experiencing the, the trials and the difficulties and the hardships of life that come in a velocity that are exacerbated by the, the sense of God's absence or the, the lack of his voice or the absence or his silence or the absence of his voice. It, it is exacerbated by that experience where, where the person going through the trial feels as though they've been 
abandoned by God or forsaken by God. And how easy uh, it would be to enter into one of those dark nights of the soul if that was your experience where you felt as though you were being forsaken or God was turning his back on you. In 1956, in his 50s, late 50s, C.S. Lewis, and we we often talk about C.S. Lewis as a great apologist, a great, you know, communicator uh, of the gospel. And uh, C.S. Lewis, in his late 50s, finally found love in his life. And he uh, married a uh, writer, an American writer by the name of uh, Joy Grissom. And uh, uh, four years after they got married, uh, she battled uh, cancer and she lost. She, she, she died a, a horrible death back in the 50s, you know. Uh, cancer treatment was, was, was like a hundred times worse than, than anything that you could imagine that it is today. And during this intense period of grieving that followed, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote four notebooks. Uh, the words in the first couple of volumes were filled with, with anguish and with, with, with rage and outrage and, and uh, just these hurt, deep feelings of, uh, of despair. And uh, the latter part of his writings were an introspective, uh, really, of the changes that this loss had on uh, his life and on his, his character. Those notebooks were published about a year after uh, Joy's uh, death, but they were published under a pseudonym, under uh, a, an assumed name. Um, those that speculate the reason why uh, C.S. Lewis did so under this subterfuge was because he had come to the, to the precipice of, of doubts. He experienced what many people experience when they're going through a process of great grieving where you ask the questions, why, how? How, how, how can a loving God allow this to happen? How can, how, can, how can a loving God allow this woman whom I love so much suffer so painfully in her death? And those were some of the things that he struggled with. In his words, he called it the dark night of the soul. R.C. Sproul uh, wrote this concerning the dark night of the soul. He said, this phenomenon describes a malady that the greatest of believers have suffered from time to time. It, it's a malady that provoked David to soak his pillow with tears. It's the malady that earned for Jeremiah the title, the weeping prophet. It was the malady that so afflicted Martin Luther that his melancholy threatened to destroy him. And then he said, this is no ordinary depression, but a depression that is linked to a crisis of faith, a crisis that comes when one senses the absence of God and it gives rise to the feelings of abandonment. Those feelings may be totally illogical, but those are feelings nevertheless. And one of the things my wife taught me a long time ago is whether my feelings are true or not, you've got to validate what I'm feeling. I believe that God validates our feelings as well. We've been given exceeding great and precious promises. And one of those promises says in five negative ways, 
or negative terms to compound the positive outcome is that God will never, never, never will he ever leave us nor forsake us. But that promise, when circumstances seem contrary to that promise, it is easy to spiral into this saying of this dark night of the soul. So in part five of this series now, I want us to consider a promise. Remembering the grid through which each of these messages are to be remembered, and that is that Jesus is able to save, that Jesus is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before his presence, that ultimately that Jesus, by his grace, is the one who will ultimately keep us from falling away. But I want to say this, that there is a promise that we're going to look at this morning that I'm going to try to marry together with a principle that's found in Scripture that I believe that will become a lifeline to us so that we will either get out of our, our night of darkness a lot sooner or we will prevent from ever going into that night of the dark soul. And it is the promise that God will keep him in perfect peace. I will keep in perfect peace. Perfect peace. I mean, we're not just talking about human peace. We're talking about God's peace, which is, which is perfection. Because everything about God is, is perfection. It's inexplicable. It, it surpasses understanding. And, and so here's a promise that we want to look at in its context in Isaiah chapter 26. But I want, I want you to notice that it comes with a condition. And here's the condition. If you will do this, God says, I will do that. If you will do that, God says, then I will do this. So, so this is the conditional promise. And so let's look at it in its context. Isaiah 26, verse 3 and verse 4. You, God, the prophet is speaking, will keep, guard, protect, preserve in perfect peace, the peace I just mentioned that surpasses comprehension, him whose mind is steadfast, whose mind is fixed, whose mind is stayed, whose mind is centered, because he trusts in you, trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, and remember, this is first written in Hebrew, Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh is everlasting strength. What God's peace translates into will be strength for you so that you will not be overcome in the day, or I should say in the night of darkness. Perfect peace. I know that some of you here in this room have experienced this peace that's inexplicable when, 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 when you have suffered the loss of a loved one. When you have gotten in the car and driven to the ER because of an emergency. When you got a pink slip or when you got a failing grade or when, you, or, or, or when some, someone was waiting for a doctor's report and, and the doctor's report wasn't good. But nevertheless, there was an inexplicable peace that came over your mind and your heart and kept you from sinking I want you to listen to this verse from the Amplified Translation. It's the same verse, but, but it adds some nuances. And one of the things I suggest 
that whenever you study scripture, you should always study scripture with more than one translation. The more, the more the better, because the more nuances can come out of so that God can, God can illuminate his word to our understanding. So this is the Amplified Translation, and it says this, you will guard... That's the word keep. You will guard him and keep him in perfect and constant peace whose mind both is its inclination and its character, its inclination, what you are inclined to think about is stayed on you, fixed on you because he commits himself to you, leans on you, hopes confidently in you. So here's... here's, the advice. So trust in the Lord, commit yourself to him, lean on him. These are the responsibilities that we have. These are the things that we are to do. If God is to, it's, is to partner with us and to fulfill his promise, then we are to lean on him, hope confidently in him forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. God is an everlasting rock. I like that. I like the image of the everlasting rock. He, in the midst of a world that is constantly changing, when, when we were up at the uh, conference uh, at Potesco Aurora, I said to Peter and a couple of the other guys, I think, I think Dan was there, and uh, I, I, said, I said, you know, because there's a river that we were looking at at the time, and there's a river that runs right through the area of Tuscarora. I said, I said, guys, I said, you could never step into the same lake twice. That's because the river is always moving. It's always changing. And, and we live in a world that is always moving and always, always changing. But the one constant, the one thing that never changes, I am the Lord. I change not. God, the rock. And because God does not change, we know that his promises don't change. He doesn't vacillate. He doesn't, there's no variableness in him or shadow of turning that God is one great constant. He is forever the same. And, and that for us, is to produce in us a confidence so that the peace that he offers and the peace that he promises to give, if we will do our part, then God will certainly do his part to keep us in perfect peace. This can be your experience. This can be my experience. And here's, and here's an important principle that I want to marry together with this scripture. I got to tell you, I, I, I was searching for rocks this week, and, and, and my idea was to, to find rocks and to write this, this thought on the rock, and I was going to give it to you, but I couldn't find rocks that were either big enough or, or smooth enough or, or, or large enough for me to put. So, so, so here's my recommendation. Get a tattoo. No, I'm, I'm, just, I'm not kidding. <laughs> I don't, I don't advocate tattoos, but if you were going to get a tattoo, then, then put this on your body for goodness sakes. No, I'm just, just kidding. But if, if you want to tweet, tweet this. If you want to post, post this. this. This saying together with, listen, marry together with Isaiah 26.3, marry together this thought because it will be, listen, it will be a lifeline to you to help you get out of the night of the dark soul, okay? Here here it is. Never doubt in the dark what God has told you in the light. Never doubt in the dark what God has told you in in the light. Never doubt 
what God has spoken to you, what God has revealed to you, what God has promised you in the day when things are well, when things are good, when you find yourself in the night, when things are not good, when things are difficult, when you find yourself in the midst of trial, do not doubt in the trial what God has promised you in the light. So here's the question. And the question is, how can a person of faith have a crisis? How can somebody like C.S. Lewis have a crisis of faith or a crisis of doubt? It seems like a, an oxymoron or a contradiction or a paradox. But here's the thing about our faith. Our faith is not as constant as God is a rock and he does not change. We vary and therefore our faith also varies. We, we take three steps upward and sometimes we take a step or two backwards. We change because the seasons of our life change. And, 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 and while we go from faith to faith in between Faith to faith, sometimes there is there's hesitation, there is wavering. Uh, I heard this thought that, that, that for new Christians, the life uh, in Christ is easy for new Christians. When you're old, the life in Christ is joyous. But in the middle, that's where the battles take place. So that's what we're talking about today. So what I want you to know is this. Never doubt in the dark what God has spoken in the light. Now, you won't find that as a scripture, but you'll find the principle. And that's what we want to look at this morning to marry together Isaiah 26, 3. Because, because I want you to think about this. What would have been, what could have been had this thought been married together with he will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on the if this person that I want to talk to you about had only Remembered Isaiah 26.3 and this statement never or this principle never to doubt in the dark what God has promised in the light. And I want to look at John the Baptist for a minute this morning. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 verse 1 says this. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples... He went on from there to teach and to preach in the towns of Galilee. When Jesus heard in prison, I'm sorry, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing. Now, now, now let me just stop here for a minute and let me just point out to you. It does not say, it does not say when John heard what Jesus was preaching, it doesn't say what Jesus was teaching. It says what Jesus was doing. So, so Jesus begins the itinerant job or ministry of preaching and teaching the gospel of the kingdom. A part of his ministry was not only to teach and to preach the gospel, but to also confirm the word with signs and with wonders. And we know that the miracle ministry of Jesus was to heal the sick, to raise the dead, cast out devils, right? Do all, all those things that we have so many times talked about, right? And so, and so those deeds are coming back to John while John is in prison. So when John heard in prison what Jesus was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come? A phrase that is synonymous with Messiah. You might as well, John, you might as well say, Jesus, are you the Messiah? 
Because that is a phrase that is absolutely identified with the one who is to come, Messiah. The one, I mean, that was the expectation of Israel. It's still the, the, the Jewish person's hope that Messiah will come, but he's come, right? So, so the one, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Should we look for another? Now, you got to remember something. This is the same John who introduced Jesus to the nation as the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. This is the same John who said, I see the heavens open and the Spirit of God descending, resting on Jesus in the form of a dove. The very, the very message that John, that John had received was foretold would be the indicator or the, the symbol or the sign by which he could identify the Messiah. This is the same John who heard the audible voice of God say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And yet John now says, are you the Messiah? Or should we look for another? John's confusion, John's uncertainty, John's doubting, Whether or not Jesus is the Messiah is John's experience of his night in the darkness or his darkness in the night. Now, I got to tell you, years ago, uh, I had a different opinion about this. Uh, Like many commentators who try to protect John's reputation, Uh, Many have suggested that that John was actually pointing his disciples to Jesus, wanting their faith to grow in Jesus. And and remember, John said, I must decrease, he must increase, right? So, So that stands to reason because of the personality of John. I mean... John's personality was was he he lived out in the desert, this guy, right? And now and now suddenly he is he is doubtful. He he is confused about the identity of Jesus, though he heard the audible voice of God, though he saw the vision. Listen, I mean this is this is absolutely incredible. Other commentators suggest that one of the things that John was doing was trying to gently cajole or, or, or compel Jesus to come out and declare himself publicly as the Messiah because that's one of the things that we see throughout the Gospels. In fact, in the very end, the high priest says, says we adjure you by the, by the living God. Tell us, are you, are you the Messiah? And he said, and I am, you know, right? At the very end of the ministry of Jesus. So how many times did Jesus do something and then he would say, don't tell anybody, right? You know, and, and there was a purpose behind that, right? So that is not what I believe what's going on here. What I believe is going on here is that, that John is doubting in the, in the dark what he has clearly heard God say to him in the light. And John has entered into a dark night of his soul. I tell you what, if John messed up like this, I don't know about you, I've never had heard the audible voice of God. I mean, I've had internal visions, you know, where my eyes are closed and, and, I, and, I, and I have a sensory perception of, of God speaking to me, but, but nothing like this. And if that happened to John, if, if John could mess up so royally, then where does that leave us? And there's grace for us. 
as there is grace for John as well. See, I believe that the messengers who came to ask the question were asking it for John's sake because the answer that Jesus gave was for John to ponder. It was to benefit John. The key to this incident is in the first verse that we read or the second verse that we read because John was in prison. This is not what John is used to. John is not used to being in prison. John is in a gloomy, dark dungeon. Even the word dungeon itself is a menacing, you know, painful expression, a dungeon. You know, it's not just the jail, it's a dungeon. And it's dark and it's damp and it's gloomy. And, and, and this is a guy who lived out in the wilderness, who lived out under the stars, the canopy of the, of the moonlit night. And now he's in this dark, dark place. And it's a reflection of the darkness that his soul was experiencing, the identity crisis that he felt. So he asked Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? And I believe that the reason why John was stumbling was because of the very prophecies, the very things that John foretold about Jesus. I mean, John must have been saying to himself, now remember, it was because he heard about what Jesus was doing. He, has, he hasn't heard Jesus take the ax and lay it to the, to the root of the tree. Where, where, where was the baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire that John talked about? Where was the wrath of God, the day of the vengeance of our God that John had prophesied that he would come as a theocratic judge to judge? Now, John wasn't wrong in his prophecies, but his timing was, was off. See, because the Bible says that Jesus will come a second time to judge the living and the dead. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that he will come, the Son of God will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on all those that obey not the gospel. So there is that aspect of the judgment of God in the book of Revelation clearly warns about the wrath of the Lamb who sits upon the throne. But this is not now. And the reason why John is stumbling is because Jesus has come as a tender shepherd who has had compassion upon the sheep who don't appear to have a shepherd, who are vulnerable and who are being devoured by the wolves and by the, by the bears. And so Jesus is moving tenderly in, in, in healing the sick and in setting free captives and in ministering in a way that John did not identify. And so Jesus replies in verse four, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured and the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news or the gospel is preached to the poor and blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me, blessed is the one who is not offended in me. Blessed is the one who does not stumble. Blessed is the one who's not scandalized by me, Jesus said. What does Jesus do? Well, I'll tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't say yes to John or he doesn't say no to John. That would be to easily answer John's 
question, but it wouldn't solve the problem of John's misconception. And so what does Jesus do? He quotes two passages of scripture, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, and Isaiah 61, which most of you are familiar with. But Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, read it for yourself. It is identical to what Jesus is quoting here. And so Jesus is shutting John up to the scriptures, which he knew and probably overlooked and probably did not have in mind in the timing of the Messiah's coming, that this would be the identification, this would be the marks of the Messiah. And so what Jesus is saying in essence, John, have you forgotten the very prophets that fed you the hope of my coming in the first place that now the works that I'm doing are now feeding your, your doubts? You know what? There's, there's always an answer for us in the word of God, but sometimes we look in the wrong place. And sometimes we look in the wrong place because we're looking for the answers we want instead of the answers that God gives. So verse 7 says this, and John's disciples were leaving. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? John was no weed. If not, then what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's power. You got to understand the humor that's, that Jesus, he, he's, he's, poking, he's poking fun at those that wear fine clothes in, in king's palaces and is, and, is, and is pointing out the softness of Herod and is, and is saying in comparison, look at the roughness, look at the courage, look at the... Look at the character of John. Then what did you go out for to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you, and more than a prophet. And Jesus, Jesus is now praising John. You know, some men, when they'll flatter you, they'll flatter you to your face, and when you walk away, they'll tell you, tell others what they really think. But Jesus did the very opposite. And Jesus begins to praise John for his courage and his faithful service. That, that's what makes this whole episode so puzzling. He's not self-indulgent. He's not soft. He's not, he's not weak. And he's a prophet, but, but Jesus said he's even more than a prophet. Why is he more than a prophet? Because John, John is the last in the line of prophets. Of all the prophets, John is the, fulfill, is the forerunner of the Messiah. He's the one who introduces Jesus. And when Jesus calls John great, it's because of his proximity or his nearness to Jesus. You know, that, that is really an interesting thought. That Jesus measures greatness by our nearness to him, so that the nearer we are to Jesus, the greater we will be. Soon after this incident, John was beheaded. John was martyred for his uncompromising faith. I have no doubt at all 
Listen, Jesus had to tell the scribes and Pharisees, search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, but they testify of me. All Jesus had to do was point out to two scriptures to John. And John would have said, oh man. I believe the darkness that was over him physically, that the darkness was over him spiritually broke. I have no doubt that John made a recovery of his soul because in the final analysis, it is God in his grace who is able to keep us from falling. Reminds me of an old hymn. Uh, the verse goes like this. <clears throat> some of you maybe know this. Some of you may have never heard this before. It says, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptation? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. That, that hymn, song, is, if you will, pointing to what Paul said to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter four, Paul said, take everything to God in prayer. Tell God everything. Everything that you need, be specific. Let God know what your requests are. And when you do that, do it with thanksgiving. And when you do that with thanksgiving, something's gonna happen to you. The peace of God that surpasses understanding is gonna guard your mind and your heart through Christ Jesus. But most importantly, he connects it back to Isaiah 26.3. Then, then Paul says, and whatsoever things are good and whatever things are lovely and whatever things are worthy of praise and whatever things are of a good report, think on these things. And then he says, we have the added benefit, not only of the peace that comes from God as a gift, but we have the God of peace himself shall be with you. Listen, it's one thing to have God's peace. It's another thing to have the God of peace with you. When you have the giver of all of his gifts living with you, going through whatever it is you're going through together, I mean, that is amazing. So how important is it for us to, to, to get these minds of ours, these thought, our, our meditation, the, the things that we think about, for as a man thinks in his heart, what? So is he? Because the way that you think, what you think of, what you fill your mind with, what you are consistently musing over will set the course of your life. That's the word. Will set the course and the direction of your life. If you think negatively, if you think, if you think angry thoughts, if you think bitter thoughts, that is what your heart will reflect. But if you think the thoughts of God, if you, if you think of God, the word of God, if you'll meditate in the word of God day and night, you'll be like that tree planted by the water. This is why it's so important. You have a choice to either fill your mind with thoughts of peace or with darkness. I know which ones I want. Our takeaway this morning is simply this. Never doubt in the dark what God has spoken in the light. Tweet that, somebody, please. 
Post that, somebody, please. Tattoo that, somebody. John, I know you're thinking about it. I know you're thinking about it, John. You got 500 tattoos already. All right, so keep your mind fixed on him, and he will keep you in his perfect peace. I want to close with this. Somebody observed this. What lies behind us, our past, and what lies before us, our future, are small matters compared to what lies within us. The past and the future are of little matter compared to what's in here, what's in our hearts. Things like anger and disappointment are negative feelings that spring from the past. Fear and anxiety are things that can spring from anticipation of the future. Those attitudes, if we allow them, will rob us, whether they're thoughts of the past or thoughts about the future, fears or anxieties or or anger or bitterness, any of those things will rob us of our present, which is most important, that we know peace. The peace of God that passes understanding. Priceless. Amen? Let's pray. So, Father, this morning we thank you once again as we come into your holy presence. We thank you for the word of God that you have purposed that would encourage us and give us an inheritance. How grateful are we, Father, for the inheritance that you give for, for the riches that you give do not fade away. They don't rust. No thief can break in and steal this inheritance. So I commend to this house the word of God that is able to build you up and to give you this inheritance, the word of his grace. And this is a word of grace this morning for us. Remember that walk out of this place this morning, remembering, oh yeah, I know, I know Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. He will keep in, in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you because he's trusting in you and never, never, ever doubt in the dark what God has promised in the light. And, 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 and just in case anybody doesn't know, we have promises that God has spoken in the light And we have promised books back in the lobby in case you don't know his promises that you can have a book filled with his promises that cover what things that God has spoken to us in the light. And then never doubt that again because what God has said will come to pass. And if you do your part, God will do his part. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Christ, I don't know, maybe you've walked in today for the first time that you've been in church in a long time, maybe maybe you've never been in church before. It doesn't matter. Church is not the, it, the means of salvation. Jesus is, is the Savior. And I want you to be introduced to Jesus today. And you can do that by, by a simple step of faith. Take one step toward him and he will take 10 steps toward you. Just come to Jesus just as you are without one plea, but that his blood was shed for you. 
receive Jesus as your Savior, and he will forgive you of your sins. You do that by an act of faith. You say, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. I make this promise today to follow you all the days of my life. If you will do that, your name today, I promise you, will be written in the Lamb's book of life, and you will have eternal life. And there is nothing greater, there's nothing more important than that. 